I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. Recording in progress. Okay, do you guys hear that when it, that goes off? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, y'all ready for this? It is now time for another episode of the Liturgy Guys. Eucharist! Eucharist! Our response, number 29. Yeah, you know, it's a good thing at the rate that we're going on these podcasts, that this is like a three-year Eucharistic revival and not an yeah. easy little one-year thing. Hey, dude, we have a lot to say. The Eucharist has a lot to be said about it, so yeah. we're going to take all the time we need. And as yeah. they say, the yeah. Eucharist is not going to revive itself, although that's probably some <laughs> type of heresy. Says, oh, wow. <laughs> hey, that's good. This poetry is not going to appreciate itself. Bart Simpson line right there. All right. <laughs> So uh, we, we've been talking about yeah. Eucharist and all the good things that it is. And we ended up with, uh, mm. and that's not just being an observance and fulfillment of a, of, a, of a requirement, but participation in the act of love. God wants to love us, bring us back to him, glorify us, make us better than we were. And yeah. we usually sit there with our arms crossed in annoyance. At least I do. But you don't either. I do not. But your arms are crossed on the inside. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes it depends on the music and who's cracking their knuckles in the moment. What is it with the cracking of knuckles at mass? People are crazy. The Eucharist is being held up by the priest sound all over. We get a knuckle cracking uh, sound. Uh, sound yeah, effect Michael, there, Michael, we have a knuckle cracking sound. Yeah. Less cracking of the knuckles and more cracking of the whip. You know what I'm saying? Yep. All right. So the next section of this document from the U.S. bishops, the mystery of the Eucharist in the life of the church. Yeah, two, two, uh, I can't believe we're still on this, but I gotta say, this thing is really good. So I've, uh, I don't know, since since we were last together, I had a chance to do a lot of Eucharistic revival talks in parishes and in the diocese and stuff. Um, but this is really is a great document. You know, not all documents are created equal. You know, but this yeah. really is good. Yeah, some so of we, those terrible ones from the '70s that came out of the bishop's uh, office were a little, a little questionable. But like, uh, this one, not. Yeah. Which which is that one you like so much? From the 70s? Environment and art in Catholic oh, worship. Also, yeah. music in Catholic worship. Maybe the two worst bishop documents before <laughs> the German synod that were ever written by <laughs> bishops. All right, well, let's move along. <clears throat> let's move along then. So yeah. this one, this mystery of the Eucharist and life uh, of the church. So it's in two principal parts. And th- this really is worth a read. So the first part is about the gift of the Eucharist. And this is what we've covered so far, that the Eucharist is a sacrifice, which, you know, just by way of summary, which is great, right? So people think this Eucharistic revival, as I found, is about expanding times of Eucharistic adoration. And that is a part of it. But how this document starts is the gift of the representation of the sacrifice of Calvary before your very sacramental eyes. I mean, that I don't know how many people would start, you know, if you got drafted onto this uh, drafting committee, if that's where you'd start. But this is great. So it's about the gift of the representation of the sacrifice 
then the gift of the real presence of Jesus, and then the gift of communion with God and in his church. And so this second part, which is what we're going to do over the next couple of podcasts is, well, you know, I don't know when this is coming out, Jesse, but, uh, you know, when you get a great gift at Christmas, what's your response? Or, you know, you give your kid a great gift. What do you expect them to do in response? Oh, gee, thanks. That's awesome. (laughs) Or they run and say, this isn't what I asked for. Did you ever get that pink bunny suit like they did in the Christmas store? I can see you getting that. No, but guess what I did get in the mail recently? (laughs) Uh, Well, I I don't know. (laughs) No, I got a a coffee coffee mug from the one and only Vicky Delaney. I think. Wait, so did I. Yeah. 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 So So it was a brown paper wrapper. So I was a little suspicious at first. (laughs) You thought it was going to be more delicious? (laughs) Mm. So she what apologized is for not sending pie crust. It's a mug. What does it say? I have it right here. It's uh, have a Merry Christmas. It's going to be liturgical. Yeah, L-I-T yeah. hyphen urgical. Yeah. yeah. So, so super right. fan, Vicky Delaney. Yeah. So Thank you, you get this gift from Vicky Delaney. What's your response to that going to be? Well, I mean, you're going to thank her uh, on a podcast that's mm-hmm. listened to by millions of people. <laughs> uh, and other things, right? So, but it any gift deserves a response. And the response to the gift should be in proportion to the magnificence of the gift that you've been given. So imagine that God's going to give you the gift of being atop uh, Calvary, that God's going to give you the gift of encountering the, the whole Christ. Imagine God's going to give you the gift of becoming a part of his very body, that when you receive communion, you're going to be digested into Jesus as much as, or more than, in fact. You're, uh, he, you're going to ingest him and digest him and incorporate him too. All right. So how are you going to respond to that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> this document's going to tell us how to respond to that gift. And so in this part that begins at number 29, if you're reading along at home, uh, there's four responses. We're going we're gonna to start with the first one here, as you might suggest. There's four ways to respond to this great gift, which is the Eucharist. The first is to thank God and worship him. The second is to be transformed and transfigured into him. The third is to convert away from sin. And fourth is to go out into the world. So in this podcast, Dennis and Jesse and others, we're going to talk about the response of thanksgiving and worship. And of course, that's just like a, that's cyclical. You just uh, lather, rinse, repeat, you know? Yeah, well, yeah, but not in any uh, ordinary. I mean, you don't want to fall into the to the habit. Eh, it, habits are good, and ritual action is good. But you don't want to become, I guess, mindless and rote, like maybe that mm-hmm. is. But anyway, right. But so the more you 30. know and appreciate something, the more grateful you are for it. So I think uh, the lather rinse repeat doesn't have to be mindless. It means it gets better, it gets cleaner, it gets more perfect every time. Yeah. Softer, more snuggles from dryer sheets every time. <laughs> All right, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead, uh, Dennis. Oh, wait. Uh, so number 30, number 31. All right, the first response to this great gift is to thank God. So the first one is thanksgiving. One of the things, uh, do you guys make uh, Advent resolutions? No. I'm I'm not very good at we resolutions. Get the, Michael, can we get the cricket uh, uh, sound effect? <laughs> I make I make Advent revolutions. You know what I'm Maybe saying? An angry an angry cricket or two. Angry yeah. cricket. Is that a thing? An Advent resolution? I mean, it, it makes sense, but it's yeah. I guess outside of your fertile mind. 
I don't know. It's not a resolution the same way as you make uh, Lenten resolutions. But it, uh, you know, it, you know, if God's going to come, you know, knocking on your door, you know, you're going to clean up your living room or something like that. So it, there's a type of resolution to kind of get ready for that. I mean, I, 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 maybe not as explicit as that, but this year I've been trying to really focus on the four themes that come out um, in, in the preparatory themes for each week. You know. Oh. Um, faith, joy, hope, and peace. And so in this week, we're in, you know, we're recording this, you know, the, the last week of Advent. And so this is the week of peace. And so I've been trying to think about that. All right. Well, my, uh, one of the things I wanted to do was to, uh, uh, I had this, it's, a, it's an Old Testament, uh, you know, excerpts, you know, highlights of the Old Testament. <laughs> and, uh, with a little bit of commentary. One of the things I read yesterday was about this, uh, offering that Melchizedek made after Abram had uh, rescued Lot from, uh, from these Eastern kings. And the thing it said is that offering bread and wine was a type of thank offering for victory. Now, Dennis, you've studied about some of these things too, is that you know, there's all sorts of different sacrificial offerings in the Old Testament and in the temple and things like that. And one of them is the thank offering. And I've heard of this too, but it never occurred to me to ask, well, thanks for what? you know, thanks for a raise at work? Is it the thanks for a child? Is it thanks for, you know, a new car, a new house? What this uh, particular thing was saying, this commentary, I don't know how accurate this is. I've tried to verify this, but that these thank offerings in particular, I guess this one here was a thank offering for victory. And what struck me is that when Jesus is offering this bread and wine, he's offering as a thanksgiving for victory, which seems like an odd thing because the next day you think, that's a victory. Seems like uh, the defeat. But the thing is that the, the first thing we do is we thank God for, well, we thank God for the, this great gift. And that's the meaning of Eucharistia. And Thanksgiving doesn't mean, hey, thanks God, you're great. You know, you know, kind of, you know Thanksgiving is in the Old Testament is always associated with sacrifice, with offering, with a religious practice of some kind, you know, whenever. Whoever meets the Lord, they they make an offering on that spot. And so Thanksgiving is a little more than just, I like you and I appreciate you, right? You give back something that you've received as a, as a token or you ask to be glorified. And so uh, I think it's a little easy to limit ourselves to Eucharist as Thanksgiving is not meaning a sacrifice, that it's just a little meeting of happy people saying happy things to their happy God. It's uh, a little more serious than that. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, at number 31 then, talking about the seriousness seriousness of it. The, the thank offering is a response of a sacrifice. And in this instance, in the form of bread and wine, but at number 31, right? So, okay, this sounds great, but how is this, how can you take it from just being this, you know, 4,000 year old thing that happened to, well, how do you actually do this when you go to mass next Sunday? And 31 gives you a number of reasons of how to participate in a thank offering for victory to God. First, what, be conscious yeah. of the gift you've received. That's pretty, what, obvious and yet easy to forget. <laughs> what, am I getting a gift or am I just going through the motions? So what is it that, uh, that we've received in his act of self-giving? Well, yeah, and I mean, that's, that's why I think uh, it's, uh, they call them tautology. That, you know, that's why you had to have the first part first and the second part second, is you have to know what it is you're supposed to be thankful for, that you're, God has saved you from your sins and that he has not abandoned you 2000 years ago and that he invites you into the full communion of his church. So that's the first part is, you know, know what you're thankful for 
Right. Um, and, and the conscious of it, it is not just, hey, I, I've heard the words and I read a book about it before I got here. They say it's taking part with your bodies, your mind, your heart, words, actions, gestures, even the moments of silence. And that's kind of an interesting thing. If you're going to be conscious of going to a football game, right, you're going to be aware of the tailgate and the chips and the beer and the fight song and the plays and the ref who made the bad call and the victory. You don't really become conscious of what you're doing. So you do all that stuff. You just sort of know about the, the team. And so uh, this active participation, this is not something I've ever heard before, relating active participation to uh, being conscious of the gift. But I think it's a really, really good insight here. I wish I knew who wrote this. I know they're not supposed to put their names on it, but <laughs> yeah. somebody good and smart wrote this. Yeah, but what I found excellent about that section too at number 31 is, you know, if you want to participate in this thank offering at Mass, it doesn't mean you have to get your name on the list of the lecture schedule or the communion minister schedule or something like that, right? For most of us, most of the time, it means being in the assembly, sitting in your pew in the nave, using your mind, opening your eyes and ears, paying attention mentally and internally, uh, offering, becoming associated with that offering back to God that becomes manifested in how you sing and how you don't crack your knuckles, how you stand and you sit and you kneel uh, yes. and all of this other stuff. So, yeah, it's uh, our participation in our response to this great gift and the thank offering is to, you know, very much according to our nature and our place in uh, the church. It's not something extraordinary, you know, somehow only taking place around the altar in the sanctuary. It takes place in your heart from where you are. Do you remember when we did that uh, whole episode on postures um, that we that we have during mass? Well, I, uh, <laughs> okay, well, why don't we take a break and then Chris can go listen to it and then he can have a frame of reference. Um, I was interviewing uh, for the Institute on Religious Life, a Maronite uh, religious, and she said that they stand throughout their entire liturgy as a point of readiness. And I remember we talked about standing, like when you stand up, it means you're, you know, you are ready for something. And so we see that in different parts of the liturgy where we're kneeling and then sitting, and then we go to standing positions and things like that. So I thought that was, that was kind of nice. And it makes me think of this. And this whole thing obviously is just dipped into Sacrosanctum Concilium and, and active participation that, that we hear from Pope Pius X. And so I, I love it. It's great. Yeah. You know, there's uh, um, I, I found myself using this uh, kind of paradigm of the liturgy more and more lately, that there's like three, and maybe we did a podcast on this, there's like three bodies of persons who come together and act in the liturgy. The first and principal ones are the persons, the Trinity. What are they doing in the liturgy? And that's really what the first half of this document was about, the action of God in the liturgy. The second group of actors is us you know, the Laos, the people in, in the pew, uh, that um, it's not just enough that you have the ministers doing everything they need to do to execute the liturgy perfectly and beauti beautifully. Although, you know, most liturgical commentaries, what's going on? What are these people doing in the sanctuary? You know, it's what are we doing, right? So the Trinity can do their parts great. The ministers can do their parts great. But if we're just, you know, not conscious of the great gift. We're not uh, using our bodies to manifest, you know, our souls and our hearts and our minds, you know, then the whole thing's not going to achieve the effect that it's uh, supposed to have. And that's what that number 31 does. But have you ever been guilty of giving someone a present that you wanted them to have, but that they were not too interested in? I used to do that to my mom all the time. So well, like, she needs that. She needs this. And then she's like, Oh, very nice. Right? Or vice versa. <laughs> right. You receive something that somebody else thinks you need. 
And you're like, uh, right. But, you know, if you took the time to figure out, well, what is this thing that somebody gave me? Like someone gave you a priceless painting and all you, th- the first thought is, well, how can I sell it at an auction and <laughs> you know, buy a car with it? Well, then you don't really appreciate the thing itself, right? So a lot of this is about understanding, knowing, appreciating, and then becoming more capable to actually receive that uh, that gift. Yeah. yeah um, so we've already, imagine, you know, your kid gets a gift from his grandma or something like that. And right, part of a parent's job is to teach the child how to respond properly to that gift, right? So Jesse probably, well, you've got great kids, Jesse, but uh, they, they didn't come out of the womb this way. Dennis, you made this point a couple of podcasts ago. You know, they don't come out with a spirit of gratitude. You have to teach them to now say thank you to your grandmother uh, and things like that. Well, it's, but the same with the, you know, this, how teaching your kids and your, your students, Dennis, whatever it is, how to respond in gratitude to the gift of the Eucharist at Mass ha- is, is a skill that has to be taught. Yes. We don't come out of the womb or the font knowing how to do that. There takes a- that reminds me uh, many years ago when Father Ed Oaks was alive, world-class scholar, Jesuit, would fly around the world and they'd pay him lots of money for one hour lecture. And then I heard the students at lunch going, Ugh, I have to go to Oaks class again. <laughs> Right, I get to oh, go wow. to Father Oaks's class three times a week, and somebody else pays for it. But that can happen easily, right? All you see is homework and demands for concentration and everything, and that can happen in the mass too, right? So, knowing what you're doing, make you more excited, bring something else to it. Yeah. We're gonna hopefully we'll do a little John Honey episode this uh, semester too with that article I wrote for James Pauly's uh, magazine. And man, I thought I knew a lot about the mass, but after really writing and reading more carefully. I'm going to mass differently. So uh, uh, it really does work. Uh, hey, let's now, look at, yeah, let's, look, yeah, let's look at number 32 then. Right. So God does his part. The people like us in the assembly do our parts. Number 32 does direct its attention to this other group of actors. And that's the priests and the, and the bishops and the deacons and the ministers in the sanctuary that, uh, you know, they're the medium that's connecting us to, to heaven. So um What's a, there's a topic here in number 32 that I think I've heard you talk about uh, from time to time, Dennis. Yeah. You know the word I'm thinking of? No. Beauty. What's the word you think? Oh, that one. (laughs) Enriched. So the gratitude which uh, inspires us to give thanks and worship to God and the celebration of the Eucharist should be nurtured and enriched by the beauty of the liturgical action itself. Do you have any opinions about uh, liturgical beauty, Dennis? Not really, but I'll, I'll fake nope, one or two. Let's, or, right? Nope, let's keep going. Let's move on. <laughs> right. Well, you know, if you take this realist understanding of beauty, as I am fond of doing without undermining other theories of beauty, beauty is the revelation of, of the reality of a thing, right? When its full reality is revealed, we call it beautiful. And so if you're going to encounter the mass and all these things you've just meditated upon, appreciated, then boy, you go to mass and it's ridiculous and silly and trite and distracting. Then you're, it's not really about making it relevant. It's about making it opaque to the, re- the revelation of the mysteries in the world. I love how they took this quote from Pope Francis's uh, summer <laughs> document that uh, he wants bishops to be vigilant in ensuring every liturgy be celebrated with decorum, that's fittingness, and fidelity to the liturgical books, do what they say. Of course, he put in promulgated after Vatican II without the eccentricities that can degenerate into easily degenerate into abuses. Man, that is like we should make a T-shirt with that. Hey, Liturgy Guys T-shirt, Jesse, good idea here. Michael, Liturgy Guys T-shirt. Let's talk about that. With this yeah, quote from Pope yeah, Francis. Yeah, they, they can do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you, yeah. 
Didn't we do a podcast once called Don't Be an Idiot at Mass? Uh, isn't that what every <laughs> podcast is called? <laughs> no, that's just what you tell me uh, every uh, week. But the, what <laughs> remind me of that is, uh, so idiosyncrasy, right, is putting the id, the idiot, at the center. The self. The yeah. self. The self, yeah. And, you know, that's, you know, that's the, that's the, uh, the temptation or the risk of, uh, you know, of, of every human being, you know, ever since that first id, Adam, uh, put himself at the center of his relationship with God. But I mean, you know, it, it, but it, it's, it's more on display in the sanctuary, right? You know, I can be an idiot in the, in the pew and people aren't going to notice that much. But if I'm a liturgical minister, you know, and I'm an idiot. It's there. It's on full display for everybody to see. And the thing is with the, with the liturgy in the sanctuary is that, uh, you know, the, right. The ministers like John the Baptist need to decrease, decrease. And so that the radiant truth of the matter, sort of literally there, uh, can shine through. This is the sacrifice of Christ, the presence of Christ, the communion of, uh, uh, with Christ, uh, uh, in his church. So yeah, I'm all, I'm all for that, uh, that t-shirt i'd buy one of those yeah and here's the reason why right it's not just let's be legal and beat up the priestesses and do what we want him to do he this document says if they do all this stuff right if they have prayerful understanding of the liturgy they will lead people more deeply and reverently into the exchange that is what chris the exchange that is the dialogue, dialogue. Uh, of the father and the son and the holy spirit yeah take, okay take now you are the king of that i, I sent you a picture <laughs> of a student paper where you were talking about <laughs> love yeah. i assigned one of chris's readings in the, oh, one yeah. of the sections of chris's book in one of my class readings and so one of the students really got on that so i took a picture of the page and sent it to him so he could realize that he is a cultural influencer yeah my ego <laughs> did not need that so now i'm more of an idiot now than uh, that i was before so the father and the son love each other, speak to each other. The father speaks the word, which is the son, which is his own self-image realized in the other. And then he returns that love. So what we're doing is very much the same way, right? The father has this sort of self-gift through the power of the Holy Spirit, through Christ, which is Christ. And then he asks us to be Christ, to join ourselves to the headship of Christ and enter into the same words that the father and the son are saying to each other or singing, which you you put it even better as a love song of the of the trinity and so violating laws and abusing liturgical norms isn't really so much a demerit on the liturgical police scorecard right this is anything that sort of turns it down from 11 baby to 10 to 9 to 8 to 7 mm-hmm. to 2 and then you don't actually get to participate as fully uh, as you ought to so that you know these quotes that first quote from francis is from his letter that accompanies Traditionis custodis is asking people stop messing around with the liturgy because it's going to drive people uh, away. Yeah, and, and entering the dialogue of love—that's the goal. Yeah, there the, in that last sentence which you read, Dennis. There's that word reverently or reverence, and uh, you know, I, I was about to say people talk a lot about reverence today, but I don't know. Maybe they don't. But people who are interested in the liturgy—that's one of the things that more and more of them. Are, want to see is, oh, I go to this mass because it's reverent. I think, well, what is reverence? It seems to me, do you, maybe there's a cool etymology out there that's waiting to be had, but I'm it looking seems, it up right now. You okay. keep talking until I find okay. it. Uh, uh, you keep revving your end. <laughs> reverence, uh, it seems to me when I hear people talk about is how do you respond to the person or the truth or the reality that's before you? 
Mm. And uh, this is not an official uh, definition from uh, Merriam-Webster or the, the Magisterium or anything, but that just seems to me what people talk about. And if you have this great reality, which is this divine dialogue or the set or you're on Calvary, I mean, what are you going to do? What do you, how are you going to respond if you're standing at the foot of the cross? How are you going to respond if you are before the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus? How are you going to react if you are being incorporated into the mystical body of Jesus Christ? That's what reverence is. And I think what people object to, what I object to, is when you, know, when you don't see what's going on and then you, don't, you, know, you, you're, you can't react properly to it. And so the music you sing, the manner that you have, the clothes, you know, the, your bearing, the, the, your language... It, it's not, uh, it doesn't match the reality that's in the liturgy. And so anyway, reverence, I think when people do desire it, that's, uh, that's, that's really what they're talking about, how to react to the mystery. Right. And I'm going to drag you kicking and screaming into eschatology, Chris, because nothing you said is wrong, but I also want to add, <laughs> you're standing at the foot of the throne of God. And you know, one of the ways you can know Boring. What <laughs> one of the ways you can know what reverence is, is what do the angels and saints do around the throne of God? What is their reaction to reverence? You know, I just looked up reverence here on the etimonline.com, uh, from which we get no kickbacks. And it actually comes from vereri, which means to stand in awe of, or respect, or fear. Hmm. And re is like to an intensifier, like it's, you double it, right? So what do the angels do? They're in awe of God, they, they, but it's, a, it's an awe that is utterly confident in God's mercy. And so they sing his praise, that worthy is the lamb who was slain. Uh, holy, holy, holy. All the great canticles from the book of Revelation tell us what angels and saints do. They look at the face of God and they praise and they show gratitude and they speak of his greatness. Mm. That's a good model for us, right? If we're just like, ho-hum, who cares? May, this match should be about me. Why is the priest such an idiot? Well, <laughs> why are then, they cracking their knuckles? <laughs> yeah. And sometimes there's good reasons that draws you out of your reverence. Um, and that's a challenge for, for people. I get asked that all the time after talks when I give about architecture. They're like, well, how, how do you not go crazy? And like, well, you just close your eyes. How do you not go crazy when the music's bad? Well, you stick your fingers in your ears. You can still hear through your skull. I have that problem <laughs> sometimes. The music is bad. But here's the thing. If the liturgy is presented properly, if the reality of the love song of the Trinity is made noble to our ears and the church makes it noble to our eyes, the natural response will be, thank you, Lord. This is awesome. I praise you. You know, I love you. And that's the uh, that's what we ask for. Yeah. So false reverence, just going in there looking pious, pious, that's not quite the answer, right? But if you are captured and carried away with the beauty and the reverence and the truth of what you see, then you don't really have to work to be pious, you just swim in the jacuzzi of the heavenly liturgy. We haven't talked about the liturgical jacuzzi in a long time. Oh. Hey, let me add one other thing before we wrap this up. All right, so this, this is part two of the document. It's how do we respond to the gift? And the first way we do that is by thanksgiving and worship. We do that uh, internally and with our bodies in the assembly. Secondly, the ministers do an excellent job of... Uh, of following faithfully and intelligently the uh, liturgical books. But the third way that uh, this document gives us is that this naturally spills over uh, outside of mass to Eucharistic devotions and Eucharistic uh, adoration. And, uh, again, like I said, this is not something irrelevant to the Eucharistic revival. It's just not the start of the Eucharistic uh, revival. And they, uh, you know, the, do you guys notice in here, there's like three Teresa of Calcutta quotes 
in this document, and I'd never heard of any of them before. Um, and they're all just gems, as you might expect from uh, from a great saint uh, like her. But did you see that last one uh, there, uh, Dennis? I don't know if that mm-hmm. caught your eye. What would she say? When you look at the crucifix, you understand how much Jesus loved you then. When you look at the sacred host, you understand how much Jesus loves you now. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. I mean, they're all the same in time, right? Outside of time. But he's continuing his offering uh, of love through time, which is what the Eucharist is, right? This application of the victory over sin and death and the nourishing of our souls and the bringing us to glory uh, through time. And uh, that's a now. That's not just a, hey, this happened a long time ago. That's a, this is real in your time and place. You know, we've got a, an entry in, the, uh, I guess it's the January Adoramus Bulletin. That's essentially what to do when you go to a holy hour. Because I think some people like, like, all right, I'm, I'm open to going, but I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to do while, while I'm there. You know, check my phone or, you know, pray rosaries or whatever. And, you know, it's fine. But the, I, I think this would be, this is similar to some of these insights uh, that this author gives is, you know, imagine, and I don't mean imaginary, fictional, use images. Go to the, go to a holy hour. And when you see the host in the monstrance, this is picture Jesus on the cross for you. I mean, and that's really actually what you're doing. It's not, uh, it's not fairy tale stuff. When you see Jesus in the host, uh, that Jesus who is showing himself to you through that medium of bread and wine is the Jesus who, who died for us on the cross. So this is a good reaction in response to this gift. You, you know, I looked up that, uh, that, uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta quote, and they cut off the last part. I just thought it'd be relevant to say. So it says, when you look at the crucifix, you understand how much Jesus loved you then. When you look at the sacred host, you understand how much Jesus loves you now. And then the last part was, if you look at a picture of the liturgy guys, you know how much Jesus will love you in the future. So it just, I, I, it's, it's important that we get that last, oh, last one. In there. Really? How much God hates you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow. I'm sorry. That, it was just teed wow. up perfectly. I was like, well, what about the future? And I was yeah. like, oh, the liturgy, guys. Oh, uh, wow. Well, that's great. I um, I think it's time for a liturgy question, <laughs> huh, guys? Jesse, do we have a liturgy question? Oh, we do. And I hope it's about St. Teresa of Calcutta and yeah. how I just butchered one of her quotes. But wow. All right. Home run. Liturgy question. <sighs> Mail call. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. All right. This question this week comes from Joan via Dennis. <laughs> yeah. I send her an email response, but uh, we said we'd do it on, on the show, too. So Joan says, hello, Dr. McNamara. Hello again. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> Not you, Chris. Chris, yeah. you, you be quiet unless we need you to answer. Then you then only you yeah. then and only then can you speak. It's about time I get to answer a liturgy question anyway. So <laughs> uh, this question's about uh, altar linens and cleaning them. So she said yesterday I was asked by a religious brother, the sacristan, to take home a bag of corporals to launder, fold and iron. No other instructions were given. When I got home I discovered I had an assortment of linens upon and upon contacting brother was told I have corporals, finger towels, and purificators. I washed half of them by hand and hung them to dry. Since I had a variety of linens, I started to do some research on the internet, going to reliable sites. I panicked when I read linens should be rinsed first in a aquarium 
and or rinsed and then disposed of the water on the ground. I certainly understand the reasoning for this process. Uh, but basically, her question comes to, and Dennis, you can clarify this too, have the rules changed since Vatican II, or are we all supposed to follow the same rules for washing the, the liturgical linens? And do you have any advice? Well, actually, Chris can help answer this, because when I had to oh. answer this question, I called him and said, hey, Chris, what do we do about this? Is this still the rule? And he pointed me to a, uh, a what do you call it? Not a ruling or a... What do you call it? Guidelines from, from the Bishops' guide... Committee on Divine Worship. Yeah, and it appeared in Notitia, not Notitia, uh, one of their news, BCL newsletters, the right? Yeah. And it was actually uh, first in 2012, but then they modified it slightly in 2016. And it talk, there's a section there called Care and Cleansing of Altar Linens, which the Bishops' Committee on the Liturgy actually originally stated in 2001. So it's not uh, not new, right? But the idea for a corporal, you know, is that a corporal is, you know, spread out on the on the altar by the deacon or you know, other minister. And it's meant in part, at least, to catch any uh, pieces of the host that might break off, any particles of the Blessed Sacrament. And so that's part of what they do. So you don't just take these and toss them in the, in the washing machine and, you know, let the any remnants of the host you know, go down the sewer system. So the idea first is they're rinsed in, in a sacrarium. The sacrarium is a sink that goes directly into the ground, and it used to be absolutely required in churches. I think it still is required, but many people don't build them anyway. And they just think a sink is okay, but it's a sink that goes directly to the ground. And the idea there is that any traces of, of the host or any traces of the precious blood maybe that's spilled um, would be rinsed in water, preferably in, until you can't see them anymore and this is one of these Thomistic principles that sacraments have matter and form and so if the form vanishes then it's not a sacrament anymore right so if you have a, a, a precious well if, stained... if, if the sign yeah the matter and the form together make up the sign if the sign vanishes then the reality goes longer yeah. right thank you for that it's quite precise precise yeah. thing Sorry. and then that water goes down the sacrarium so even rinsing it in regular water it doesn't just go down the sink if you don't have a sacrarium you can pour it into the to the ground this is considered a reverent way uh, deal to deal with this and only then can they go in the washing machine with laundry soap in the the regular uh manner so this is what it says here in this um thing that care and cleaning of altar linens bishops committee on the liturgy 19th of march 2001 and then it reappeared in the um, BCL newsletter in uh, 2016, I think. So there you go. Anything I need to say about that? More say about that, Chris? Uh, well, I mean, part of her question was, is it always been, this always been the case? And I, I, whatever the specifics are, I mean, the details, whatever the details have been, the general thing is that, you know, we, we care for things that are associated with the blessed sacrament, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. And so they have to be treated reverently whatever that might look like in your sacristy, given it's, uh, you know, it's aquarium or not, or things like that might change. But yeah, we treat holy things in a holy way and uh, especially corporals and purificators and the like. The same uh, thing from the bishop says, if you're disposing of worn altar linen, so your, you know, corporal gets a hole in it or something, uh, they should be buried or burned. It's kind yeah. of amazing. You don't just start washing the floor with them, you know, <laughs> polishing the, the woodwork with them. And the conclusion that it makes is that the, when we treat sacred things, the way we treat sacred things expresses 
It says here, our openness to the graces God gives to his church in every celebration of the Eucharist. So it's an extension of and a return to the importance of the Eucharist in uh, in our lives. And so uh, yeah. we treat it properly. Yeah, and I think that's the sacristan's biggest temptation is just to get cat, all of us, I suppose. But this, you know, is always carrying sacred objects. It's just to get too casual and everyday about it. So resist that. Speaking of casual... No, I'm just kidding. I, I heard a little bit of a phone buzz there. Don't get too casual while recording this podcast, guys. Hang on while I take uh, this call. Would you mind uh, a second? Yeah. Hello, darling. Yes. Okay. I'll stop. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Was that Pope Francis? <laughs> <laughs> he said, don't call me darling. Um, all right, Joan, I hope uh, this answers your question. I hope Dennis gave you the right answer when he emailed it to you. And if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God bless. Another episode of Liturgy Guys has mercifully come to an end. Our hosts are Chris, get out of my dreams and into my Carsons, Dennis, Big McNamara, and Jesse Weiler. Our producers are Michael Don't Be So Coy and Nathan First Round Draft Pickman. Our epiclesis inspector is Isabel Ringing. Our liturgical bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano. Our official aerobics instructor is Jen Uflecht. Our enforcer of choral discipline is Don B. Flat. Our official rubrics interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our self-gift provider is Kenosis. Our simplicity enforcer is Fran Siskin. And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey Shrivam and Howe. And even though overstoles become understoles when they hear us say it, we are the The Liturgy Liturgy Guys. Now that's a podcast.